This is an ABC podcast. Late last year, an anonymous memo was circulated deeply critical of the pontificate of Pope Francis. Disaster and catastrophe are just some of the words used to describe the current Pope's reign. Robert Mickens is the editor-in-chief of La Croix. Cardinal Pell wrote the memorandum. First of all, he says that Pope Francis has caused confusion. He's not clear about teaching. He's not silenced or corrected people who are making suggestions for changes in the church, which George Pell and and the conservatives or the traditionalists believe are no-goes. Ten years into his pontificate, and Pope Francis has faced increasing criticism from the conservative or traditional wing of the Catholic Church including the late Cardinal George Pell. A series of books, articles and memos recently released argue that the Pope has created confusion on issues like the Church's openness to the gay community, women priests and divorce, while at the same time creating an unwieldy mess with his process known as the Synod on Synodality. Not exactly a catchy name, but basically a process whereby bishops are required to consult with their parishioners and priests. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and in this revision, the struggle for the soul of the Catholic Church. Conflict and ideological battles in the Catholic Church are not new, but the current tensions can be traced back to the Second Vatican Council the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Catholic Church, which ran between 1962 and 1965. Convened by St. John XXIII, its aim was to modernise the Church for the 20th century and beyond. The result was the renewal of almost every aspect of Catholic life, from the language and theology of the Mass to the Church's role in the world, especially its relationship with other religions. I think it's important to see this as the Church evolved since the Second Vatican Council. Father Thomas Rees, I'm Senior Analyst at Religion News Service, and my book is called Inside the Vatican, the Politics and Organization of the Catholic Church. The Second Vatican Council, which opened in 1962, did a real renewal within the church. I mean, after all, that was how we got English in the liturgy. All sorts of changes came into the church after the Second Vatican Council. We became more open to ecumenism and interreligious dialogue, more committed to social justice and working for the poor. John Paul II was Pope for 27 years after the Second Vatican Council, from 1978 until his death. Now, when John Paul was elected, I think that John Paul felt that the church was getting too chaotic and it really needed a period of stability, of no change, whereas the progressives wanted to keep changing the church after Vatican II. John Paul II said, enough's enough we're going to have a period of stability. And Benedict was his main theologian that he worked with in establishing this. And so that's what we saw under these two popes was a move towards stability, towards defending the status quo. And anybody who challenged that, especially theologians and priests, got in trouble with the Vatican. I think they wanted to set some boundary lines around what could and couldn't be done. After Vatican II, open things up. 
John Paul II and Benedict wanted to take things in a different direction or to set out some red lines. Christopher Lamb, Vatican correspondent for the tablet and author of The Outsider, Pope Francis and his battle to reform the church. But certainly critics of John Paul II and Benedict feel that they really did interpret Vatican II in quite a narrow way. And it wasn't that John Paul II didn't follow Vatican II. He actually did a lot when it came to interreligious dialogue. He was the first pope to visit the synagogue in Rome. He did a lot with the Islamic world. And that, of course, was part of Vatican II's teaching about the church's relationship with other religions. Pope John Paul died in 2005 and was replaced by his right-hand man, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI. I announce to you a great joy. Habemus Papam, Cardinalem Ratzinger. The 265th Pontiff, Pope Benedict XVI. In 2005, it was the end of an era in a very real sense with the death of John Paul II. This is a pope who'd been in office for more than two decades. He'd overseen the church's life and governance, not just for decades after the Second Vatican Council, but also he'd been a major figure on the global stage throughout the Cold War and, and seeing out the Soviet Union and things like that. My name is Ed Condon, and I am the editor of The Pillar, and I'm also a canon lawyer. And also, he'd been a towering theological and intellectual figure. And I think people were looking for who is the steward of that legacy in the 2005 conclave and Cardinal Ratzinger, as he then was. And I think a lot of people looked at him and said, well, this was a man who was a theological force behind JP2 and can probably be trusted with his legacy. Well, they were very, very different personalities. But John Paul picked Joseph Ratzinger to come to Rome to be in charge of the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, the main theological office in the Vatican. So they were pretty much on the same page when it came to theology. Benedict was different from John Paul in personality and also he, he saw himself really as a teacher because before he became a bishop, he was a German professor. He taught theology in a German university. He saw his role as presenting very clear, defined teaching to the church. But like any German professor, if you disagreed with him, you could be in trouble. And he treated many theologians the same way he had treated his students. He did not encourage argument and dialogue and debate on issues in the church, he felt that he and John Paul II had the answers to all these questions, and that was going to be church teaching. One of the areas that when he took up the papacy, there were a whole series of scandals, whether they were scandals about corruption in the Vatican or scandals to do with child sex abuse or sex abuse scandals. And Pope John Paul, they were issues that to some extent he really didn't address. And I'm wondering whether or not Pope Benedict was able to or willing to at least start the process of addressing those kinds of issues. When it comes to scandals in the church, there are two types. There's sex and money. John Paul II simply could not comprehend that uh, priests would be abusing children. He just couldn't get his head around that. 
And because of his experience in Eastern Europe under communist rule, where priests would be accused of things that they were not guilty of, and sexual crimes was one of them, he just couldn't believe it. Now, Benedict, on the other hand, he was put in charge of the sex abuse under John Paul II, and he got it before anybody else in the Vatican did. He was slow, like everybody else, in understanding the depth and depravity of the problem, but he did ultimately get it. So John Paul II said, okay, you're in charge of it. And Ratzinger had to read the files of these priests, and he was just uh, shocked by what he read and said, these priests got to go. And he processed out hundreds of priests. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. Was he better than anybody else in the Vatican? Yes. And did he start the process of dealing with sex abuse in the Catholic Church? Absolutely. Vatican II had restricted the use of the traditional Latin Mass. But Catholic traditionalists pushed for its return. In 2007, Pope Benedict expanded its use, making him a hero to Catholic conservatives. Certainly, he had a very negative opinion of the ways in which Vatican II was implemented after 1965, and especially on the liturgy, Benedict was certainly not happy with what happened after Vatican II. My name is Massimo Fagioli, and I'm a professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Villanova University in Philadelphia. It was a contentious issue because there had been already a movement for the overturn of the liturgical reform of the Second Vatican Council. This is something that John Paul II was aware of, but he always resisted against this pressure. The best solution was in 1984 to give permission to some groups to celebrate in Latin with the permission from the bishop. Now, that was not enough for these groups, and they discovered that they could count on Pope Benedict XVI, who made the access to the pre-Vatican II Mass in Latin an individual right of every Catholic faithful, basically bypassing local bishops that before had the task of judging if it was necessary to grant this permission or not. In 2013, Pope Benedict shocked the world by resigning. With full freedom, I declare that I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome. I have had to recognize my incapacity to adequately fulfill the ministry entrusted to me. I don't know that there is a hope of overstating how dumbfounded Catholics were by that. And when Benedict resigned, I think it caught everyone off guard. I mean, you can see the footage of him reading out his resignation letter, which he did in a very Benedict XVI style. He read it in Latin. And you can see the, the faces begin to change around the room as people start to understand what he's actually saying. And it's disbelief across the board. And I think that disbelief really carried through the interregnum between when his resignation took effect and when the conclave met to elect a successor. And I think a lot of that disbelief carried on into the conclave and fed into the discussions and, and the decisions that were made when they elected Pope Francis. I think it was a very, very different kind of meeting. And no one really had a clear idea of what would come next, because, of course, we had no living history 
of a sort of spare pope, a retired pope, a, a grandfather pope, you know, living in the shed at the bottom of the garden. It was just completely unknown. It and the elated crowd gathered at the Vatican hears the first words from the new world head of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis I. The 76-year-old Argentinian Jesuit is the first pope in Catholic history from the Americas, and he's known as a moderate with strong negotiation skills. You have a very different set of priorities for the Cardinals' meeting. The ones that I've spoken to who were present in the, in the conclave that elected Francis, they weren't looking for a a steward of Benedict's legacy. They were, in fact, on the contrary, they were looking very much for, for someone who was going to be a reforming pope, but reforming in a very particular way. We tend to think of Pope Francis now as a great reformer in the sort of language of the church and the church's approach on, on all sorts of matters, pastoral and theological. But the reality is when he came out on the balcony at St. Peter's, Everyone had in their mind that the cardinals were electing someone who was going to be a reformer of the governance of the Vatican, that under the, the latter years of Benedict, the, the Vatican had been hit by scandal after scandal on matters of money and personnel corruption and things like that. And they were looking for someone who was really going to clean up the governance of, of the Vatican at that time. And I think that played a big role in electing someone from the other side of the world in Cardinal Bergoglio. So was Pope Francis, in his first 10 years, restrained by the presence of Pope Emeritus Benedict living at the bottom of the garden? I don't think so. I mean, that's open to debate. There are people who argue both sides of that question. I personally don't think so. I think Francis is a strong personality and he will do what he thinks is right. But he's not the left-wing liberal that some of my progressive friends think he is. You know, he's, he's still a pretty traditional Catholic. There was a lot of discussion about the possibility of married clergy at the Synod on the Amazon, and ultimately he came down with, no, the church isn't ready for that yet. You know, Pope Francis was, was met by progressives with cheers and cries of joy because of how they experienced the papacies of John Paul II and Benedict. But when push comes to shove, he hasn't changed church practices on many of these things that progressives would like to see changed. But he's very pastoral in how he approaches people. That's the big difference in how he operates. So has he shaken up the centers of power within the Catholic Church? Oh, he very much has shaken up the centers of power in the Catholic Church. I think that's absolutely true. The truth is he's one of the most prolific legislators we've ever had as a pope. You know, he seems to promulgate new laws every couple of months, if not weeks, particularly on the issue of financial transparency and rooting out corruption. You know, he's created whole new Vatican departments to that end. And the results have been messy. As you say, he's shaken up the centers of power and the strength of those reforms, and sometimes even Francis's own commitment to them has seemed to ebb and flow in the last decade. But, but the end result, I think, so far has been pretty strong. I mean, we currently have a trial going on in, in Vatican City where a cardinal, the sitting cardinal of the Catholic Church, and quite prominent and senior one at that, the former papal chief of staff, effectively, is on trial for embezzlement and abuse of office. This wasn't just unthinkable, it was legally impossible under Benedict and under all of his predecessors. Francis changed a lot of very old laws and a lot of very set ways of doing things to clear the way to make people answerable for corruption in the Roman Curia, and I think that's going to be a huge part of his legacy no matter how long he is Pope for.
My answer would be no. One of the problems that Francis has had is he's still operating with some of the cardinals that were appointed before he got there. I mean, this is one of the problems with Francis. He doesn't like to fire people. And you really cannot change an organization unless you change the personnel. He tried to reform the finances and brought Cardinal Pell to the Vatican to do that job, but Pell got undercut by people in the Vatican, and then he had his own legal issues in Australia that he had to go back to. So he never really had somebody really strong like Pell would have been that could crack heads and get the finances under control in the Vatican. And the other thing is, getting the finances under control is in itself not cheap. It costs a lot of money to clean up the Vatican Bank by bringing in forensic accountants. Well, they're not cheap. And they're going to have to do the same thing to clean up the other parts of the Vatican. Get good accounting, good reporting procedures, find out where the property is, what rent's being charged, all of these things. And they need somebody strong, and they need more than one person. I mean, this is a huge job. And frankly, I don't think Francis wants to spend the money to do it. Pope Francis has, however, been committed to the idea of a synodal church, a church that listens. And in 2021, he announced the two-year Synod on Synodality. Pope Francis has been very strong in pushing this idea of a synodal church. What he means by it is a, a listening church, a church in conversation, not a top-down church that doesn't listen to the people in the pews. The purpose of the synod is, first of all, for the bishops who will be attending the synod to listen to their own people, to consult with them. What do they think about the church? What are their concerns? What are their hopes and dreams about the church? Francis is very strong on this. For him, you know, this is a family. This is a community that is moving forward together with the Lord not a, a political body where people are fighting over various positions. Now, that's a hard balancing act to pull off because if you listen to the people, they're going to be saying some things. Certainly in Australia and uh, North America and Europe, you know, women are going to be saying things about why don't we have women priests? Other people are going to be saying, you know, we don't have enough priests. We need to ordain married people. People are going to bring up birth control. They're going to bring up divorced and remarried. They're going to bring up LGBTQ issues. How do you have a prayerful conversation and discussion of these issues without getting into a food fight at the dinner table? That's the real challenge for Pope Francis with this synodal process. The conservatives want to shut it down. They don't want this conversation to happen. They want to be father sitting at the head of the table and telling the children to shut up. So they don't like this synodal process at all because they don't like the idea that the hierarchy has to listen. I think one of the reasons why it has triggered so much 
tension between different wings of the church, particularly around the sort of orbit of the Vatican, is, you know, we talk about things like consulting the lady, we talk about shifting the poles of power in the church, but inevitably the question comes, well, who's actually being consulted here? Where are the poles of power? What's being upended? On the one hand, if you take a sort of general sampling of the bishops of, say, Western Europe, they would have what I think most people would recognize as a very liberal, very progressive outlook on not just the world, but on the church and what the church should do and how the church should change and reform going forward. But they also represent the part of the world where the number of Catholics in the pews is shrinking fastest. Conversely, if you look at the church in somewhere like Africa, where the numbers are booming, where new Catholics are arriving every year in their thousands, their tens of thousands, their hundreds of thousands, they are increasingly saying, well, hang on, we're the church too, you know. In fact, we're the place where the church is the most alive. And doesn't it matter what we think? And what if we happen to have a much more traditional view of things like morality and theology and things? Do we not get a voice at the table just because we don't speak in the language of the New York Times? Well, certainly this is the expectation of many that this will change something. It will not just be a nice moment of consultation and then nothing changes. And so one big problem is managing expectations because some think that synodality will install a more democratic form of government in the Catholic Church. I don't think this is going to happen. I really think and I hope it will be less clerical less vertical, less hierarchical, but we shouldn't think that this is going to create parliaments, boards of members that have the same vote of bishops. So this is something that has an unknown ending. It could be a big surprise. It could be disappointing. Certainly, there has been nothing like that in the previous 60 years. You've identified the the challenge that he is going to have. It was the challenge we had at the Second Vatican Council. I think progressives like myself have to realize that we are a 1.23 billion member church of multiple cultures, multiple beliefs. We can only move slowly, incrementally. Our complaint about John Paul and Benedict was that everything stopped. I'm an incrementalist. I would like to see small steps forward. And hopefully, Francis can find some way of doing that that doesn't tear the church apart. I mean, what happened to the Anglican community in terms of dealing with LGBTQ issues and women's ordination and these things? We don't want to see the Catholic Church torn apart. But on the other hand, you know, the progressives could be so upset that they say, forget it. I'm walking. So how do we manage change in the Catholic Church? We're not very good at that. It was a tough at Vatican II and in post-Vatican II era. It's still tough today. Pope Francis has been given a rapturous welcome to South Sudan in his first visit to the nation as he continues his six-day tour of Africa. One reform Pope Francis has achieved is in shifting the Catholic Church from being European-focused to being a global church. Francis has really intentionally de-Europeanized Catholicism, which for him is no longer a European religion. It is truly a global community, open to different cultures, to different traditions much more radical on social justice issues, 
And if one looks at the map of the countries that Pope Francis has visited, in these last 10 years, he has a very clear picture of where he thinks the papacy should be and reach out to give voice and to be close to Catholic communities that are seen historically as marginal or forgotten. And when selecting cardinals, Pope Francis has looked rather to the margins of the church than to Europe. Absolutely. This is one of the major changes that he has made. In the past, there were certain cities If you became the archbishop of one of these cities, inevitably you were going to become a cardinal. Francis threw that rule out the window and has gone to the highways and the byways to make people cardinals. He has appointed many, many cardinals from Latin America, Africa, Asia, Myanmar, Tonga, Capo Verde, It's a very different composition of the College of Cardinals. He's been looking for people that are committed to the poor, that are good pastors, that are what he refers to as on the peripheries. This has really upset the apple cart in the College of Cardinals. So how should we understand the recent publications criticizing Pope Francis? what I think we've been calling the Demos Memo, because that was the pseudonym with which it was signed, which has now been attributed to Cardinal Pell. It's a pretty sweeping view of what the next Pope needs to do, what the next Pope's priorities should be. And it's a slightly strange thing, really, Cardinals putting down on paper what they think the next Pope ought to be like. And I think in the case of the of the Pell Memo, It's a striking reflection of a number of different circumstances. The first, of course, is you can't plan for a conclave. You know, they they suddenly arrive. They suddenly happen. And when you have an 86-year-old pope, as we do, it is natural and normal in any pontificate. It's not peculiar to Francis. The cardinals start to have conversations about what is the state of the church? How are we right now? What are some of the things that need to be looked at? What are some things that are going to come next? What might the next man need to do differently? But then also the College of Cardinals, it doesn't get together and doesn't talk to each other the way they used to. It's just been a function of how things have worked in the last 10 years, that they don't gather together in the same place and talk freely amongst themselves in the way that they used to. And so you see things like the memo that Cardinal Pell wrote being circulated amongst cardinals. And I think part of that is a function of, well, these are the conversations I would have been having with people if we'd been getting together twice a year and you know getting to know one another. And so this is another way of just putting down what I think. There have been accusations since Pell's authorship of that memo has been made public of people saying, oh, well, this was disloyal and everything. But I thought Pope Francis had the best reaction to it, which is he just sort of said, well, Cardinal Pell was a pretty blunt critic when he was alive and to my face. And it's one of the reasons why I kept him around. You know, it's one of the reasons why he was one of my more trusted advisors, not because he agreed with me about everything, but because I always knew what he thought about things. And often it was advice worth hearing. There's no question that people are looking around and saying, uh, who's going to be the next pope? That's inevitable. Cardinal Pell thought that there would be a conclave by last December. He thought that Francis was seriously ill, had cancer, and that they were hiding it, and that it was the end of the papacy. And he was telling this to people, and he wanted to have an impact on who was going to be elected the next pope. And so he wrote this anonymous memorandum that he circulated among the College of Cardinals, 
but, you know, he may last longer than we think. Pope Francis, he's already appointed two-thirds of the College of Cardinals, of the voting cardinals. And, you know, if he has a couple more years, if he only has a couple more years, he's going to be adding more and more cardinals to the College of Cardinals, which is the group that will elect his successor. Now, conservatives are very worried about that. They'd like to see him go as soon as possible. I don't think they're going to be successful, but clearly people are jockeying in the College of Cardinals and outside of it, trying to influence the next conclave. Thomas Rees, Senior Analyst at the Religion News Service. My other guests, Massimo Fagioli, Professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at Villanova University. Ed Condon, editor of The Pillar, and Christopher Lamb, Vatican correspondent for The Tablet. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.